This week, we'll talk about machine learning in marketing. And we have a special guest today, Juan. Juan is a Berlin-based mathematician and data scientist. He is interested in statistical learning, time series analysis, Bayesian and geometric methods in data analysis. Welcome, Juan. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And yeah, thank you again for the invitation. So you recently gave a talk at PyData Berlin. And I thought that the talk is amazing. I wasn't able to attend the talk because they didn't let me in. The talk was already full, so the room was full. I couldn't get in, but I really wanted to talk to you, to invite you here. So well, thanks a lot for agreeing. And this is an amazing topic. I am very happy to talk about this topic with you today. But before we go into main topic, which is machine learning in marketing, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah, of course. Before I jump in, I just wanted to say that the video of the PyData talk is live. So if you want to check it out, mm -hmm. it's online already. Yeah, so I'm originally from Colombia. I came to Berlin around 10 years ago to pursue my studies in mathematics. So I joined uh, Humboldt University. So I did my master and PhD in an area which has actually nothing to do with data science per se. So it was some kind of geometric analysis which was very interesting. It's something that I wanted to do just for the sake of, of doing research, especially because I really like geometry. But yeah, after doing some time in academia, I decided to do something else. And uh, kind of my first position like about data was at TD Reply, which is a marketing consultancy. And it was quite nice because this kind of first experience exposed me to different type of projects and clients in various industries and also give me kind of the, the business uh, point of view. And because again, data scientists is, is not just math and code, but it's about how to make this useful for people to improve their businesses. And that was quite fun. That took uh, almost three years, but then I decided to, to move up to a product company because we were essentially doing kind of the, the more risky projects or the proof of concept for the clients, and then we'll deliver that for in-house development. But I was kind of missing this product development part, and that's why I joined HelloFresh. I was probably will talk in a bit uh, during my experience at TD. I did a lot of time series analysis. So I joined HelloFresh uh, to support the forecasting team. And that was quite fun, especially because it happened during COVID. So doing forecasting during COVID time was definitely challenging, definitely interesting. We couldn't, of course, rely on standard methods. So a lot of new techniques and kind of tricks uh, had to be applied. But after that, I really wanted to come back to marketing now again from a product perspective. And yeah, since around eight or nine months, I'm working at Vault, uh, where I'm part of the marketing tech team, kind of leading the data science uh, project in the marketing domain. Can you tell us a few words about geometric analysis? What is that? Yeah, sure. So geometric analysis, it's try to understand topological invariance of kind of twisted surfaces. I was especially working with surfaces with corners, so to say. But if you see the surface, you can see, for example, if they had corners, if they have holes. But if you have this in, let's say, very high up dimensions, you cannot probably see that. And you want to, to detect this through integrals or through kind of matrices. I think the ways of understanding it is, as, as Kak said, that you want, like, can you hear the shape of a drum? What he meant is like, if I give you an operator on a manifold and I compute kind of the eigenvalues, uh, the spectrum, can I detect some geometry? And you can partially detect that. So if you take these eigenvalues, you can see, for example, what's the dimension or like the volume. And yeah, and that's this game to try to detect global properties through more analytical methods. Quite unrelated to marketing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, the core is linear algebra. So linear algebra is definitely a core a part of both worlds, so to say. Yeah, I, I know this talk is about marketing, but I'm just curious, are there applications like day-to-day -day people like of the geometric analysis? Can we see as usual people applications of this somewhere? I think, as I said, like the core components, essentially linear algebra is always there. Something mm -hmm. where kind of particularly interested it's in this Bayesian inference approach and uh, these kind of samplers to get kind of samples from the Poussier distribution actually rely a lot on geometric properties. So actually there are people which did kind of design these samplers based on, on geometry 
and it has it's been quite fun to see how like all of these techniques of yeah Riemannian geometry and Hamiltonian dynamics can be actually be or are the kind of tool to create this sampler. So it's kind of a, a far connection, but it exists and it's very interesting. Interesting. I did not know about Not that I know much about Bayesian inference anyways, but I also didn't know that there is any connection to geometry there. Yeah. But yeah. Let's go back to marketing. So hopefully I do know a few things there. Not a lot. That's why we have you here. So maybe can you tell us what are the typical problems that we solve with machine learning in marketing? Yeah, I think this is a, a very interesting question because there's by no means a kind of a complete answer that I can give just because there are many kind of subfields. So on the one hand side, like I guess the most common one to think it's about how to optimize media spend. So to do better targeting to users. So of course you want to see which targets to users and kind of send personalized message and so on. You also want to prevent a churn. And for that, of course, you have historical data and you probably have some early or like regressors that could be early predicted for that. And then you can you want to take action upon these results. But uh, you can also do things, for example, using NLP and text mining through social listening. And that's something that I did in the past. We try to see, let's say, how people talk about your brand or about certain campaign in social media and to see what's the sentiment, what are the subtopics, and actually if the campaign intention was actually reflected of how people comment on that. So it's quite huge. So maybe a couple of them which I've been working at the moment are uh, on the one hand side, as I said, on the user acquisition side, which is how to better use our money, so to say, to efficiently push our marketing activities. And that is somehow related, of course, with attribution model. You want to understand the kind of flow how kind of your EU that spend, how does this work to bring new customers? And on the let's say other part, you have retention, right? So once you have your customers, you want to make sure that they're engaged with the product. And for that, we can do, yeah, churn prevention model, or as I talked about PyData, talk a offlead modeling to actually not just prediction, but actually prevent through a kind of tailor incentives. So the main ones are, as you said, user acquisition is we want to get new users. And then once we got the users, we want to keep them, right? Or detect that if they're about to leave us and somehow prevent this. And uh, the, the talk that you gave was about detecting this, right? Yeah, exactly. And attribution model, you mentioned this. So as I understand, so when we try to acquire a user, there are multiple ways of doing this. We can, I don't know, show a commercial on TV, then we can put a banner on the street, or we can, I don't know, go to Facebook and show not there. There are many, many different options, right? And the goal of attribution models is to understand how effective each channel is, or a user came into our platform. Where did this person come from, right? Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, kind of there are two parts. So on the attribution side, you spend some euro in different kind of part, let's say it could be a TV ad or a Facebook ad, and then someone registered, right? So the first thing is to connect, let's say, how or like what was the incentive or like trigger for this user to come in. And of course, it's not unique. And that's the, the fun part, so to say, because if you see a TV campaign, you'll probably won't react immediately, but maybe you, after a while, maybe that same day, you will Google for that. And then let's say through the digital kind of tracking, then you could, let's say, in principle, attribute that to Google. But then this will underestimate the effect of TV. So in the attribution part, which is also connected to measurement, you want to detect this connection. After you have done so, let's say, based on certain assumptions, then you want to optimize that because you cannot simply keep pushing, let's say, money or like putting more, uh, money in the same marketing channels because they saturate, right? We have seen that in, in practice because otherwise the strategy would be super simple. You just keep pushing money and grow your company. But we know that this doesn't work like this. So yeah, it's a little bit in that direction. So you say if I start advertising now something on Facebook in a month, I will see fewer users coming in from Facebook, right? And then I need to go to a different channel. Yeah, I mean, 
especially because, uh, let's say, there's an audience that is available on Facebook. I mean, you can try to reach them, but at some point, kind of the, the efficiency of each euro that you put on this channel is not going to, to increase. Usually, it just saturates. But of course, there are many components there. So time, as we'll see, like if you do it close to Christmas or close to like summer, uh, this also makes a huge impact. So it's not just the, the euro per se, but also kind of interaction of many features. And I'm especially curious about TV. So you said maybe you run commercial on TV, but then so users see the brand, right? So they maybe recognize the brand. And then the next time they Google something and they see food delivery, right? And then they see Volt and they click on this. How do you know that this user actually first learned about you through TV and not through Google? Is it even possible? Yeah, I mean, the kind of statistical technique to try to infer that. So actually, this is connected to what is called media mix model. So, I mean, let me take a, a step back. So before we have all of the cookies and tracking, actually marketers uh, use these statistical models to try to estimate this uplift, uh, let's say, at channel level. Then kind of all the cookie industry came in, you had kind of semi-deterministic tracking for users, so that kind of stay away a bit. But I mean, TV is a channel on which many companies just spend a lot of money. And sometimes they don't know, let's say, what's the efficiency. They just know they work. So now that new privacy measures are, are coming, like, for example, the iOS change in, in iOS 14.5, then all of these methods are coming back to life and they can work pretty well. But of course, there are statistical methods. So it's hard to say if they work, let's say, perfectly. I guess one of the main tools for that is, of course, A-B testing or geolocation experiment. Yeah, but we can talk about the details later. But it, it's possible through kind of statistical methods to, to measure this uplift. And what is uplift in this case? What do we actually measure? So, I mean, there are kind of two ways of doing this. So, um, let's say level. So you can do that as, let's say, holistically, because the marketing kind of funnel is rather complex. In this case, what you do is a regression model. And that's kind of the core of a media mix model on which you put a target variable, let's say conversions, and you would try to explain that through all channels as external regressors. The tricky part is that if you put the raw data as it is, it'll probably not work for TV and for other channels as well, because there are kind of two effects that, let's say, get mixed in this kind of regression-like relation. On the one hand side, there's a saturation effect, which means that, again, what we talked about, that it's not linear, so it's not really a correlation that you're trying to make or to find. And in addition, there's a carryover effect. And a carryover effect means you merge to something, uh, you show an ad today, and probably not all people that saw the ad will react on the same day, but on the week uh, later, for to, so to say. So in these media mix models, what you want to do is to couple saturation transformations and this carryover effect, which are sometimes called ad stock transformation, and put that into the mix in this kind of regression uh, setting. And of course, you can control for seasonality. You can go fancy and go with time-varying coefficients because the efficiency of marketing can change over time. But that's kind of more on the holistic level. And here, by uplift, coming back to your question, it's really the kind of the coefficient of this regression. Whereas if you want to do this at campaign level, where you don't have, let's say, all of this data, all of this mix, but you want to kind of detect an uplift, then you can go through a slightly different approach, which is the so-called cultural impact. And what you do is you train a time series model of your KPI of interest, let's say conversion, by controlling by a seasonality and maybe other regressors, other type of media spend. And then you generate a prediction, assuming that there was no campaign, and then you have the true values of, of your KPI, and then you would attribute this uplift. Again, this is a big if, if the only difference between or like in that period was the TV campaign. Mm -hmm. So did I, maybe I didn't understand it just to make sure I did. So uplift in the first case, when we just look at the contribution of each of the channels. So we have a regression model. So the target variable here is conversion. So somebody, let's say, registered in the, in an app or somewhere or downloaded an app some action right so let's say registration and then there are multiple channels that led to these registrations so first the user could see an ad on tv 
then maybe they could hear this in radio, maybe, or in Google or in Facebook, or no, there could be many channels, right? So you have all these channels. So they are the features, the regressors in this model. And then the target is one if the user converted, right? Yeah. And then you train this model and then you look at the coefficients and you see. So this gives you kind of contribution of each of the channels exactly. to the conversion. And then you see, okay, for TV, the coefficient is two times more than, let's say, for radio. Right. And then you see, okay, TV must be two times more important, more effective. Yeah, in a sense, I think that's the core. There are two kind of things that I would like to add. On the one hand side is that the raw kind of impressions data or cost data that you put into the model, again, would not be enough. So you need to put this saturation and add stock effect, which mm -hmm. actually have some hyperparameters that you will learn from the data. So you will actually like to learn from the data when this channel saturates. And the other is that in these media mix models, as you said, they're direct and indirect effects. So what you usually do is not have just a one regression model, but to have a couple of them to model different touch points. So if your target variable is conversion, then you have a model where TV is included, but then you have yet another regression model on which your target variable is, let's say, Google search. And then you have TV as a regressor for that. And then you do kind of an average to see the combined effect. So it's actually a sequence of a regression model. Mm -hmm. And another thing I'm really curious about, so when it comes to Google or Facebook, you have tracking, you know that this user came from this channel. But in turn, like when it comes to TV, you don't really know about that. So do you have another model that predicts if this user was exposed to a TV commercial or how does it work? You don't do this at user level, but you usually aggregate daily or mm -hmm. weekly granularity. So you, you have kind of a pool of like all of the, the users are aggregated. An agency that manage uh, TV data, they can give you cost, which is how many they spend. And also they have to like a, a way of estimating the audience, which would be the impression. Mm -hmm. okay. So this is what you actually use. So it's a time series model, so to say. So time is component, a component is important, and you have weekly or daily granularity. So it's called media mix model, right? Yeah. And then you, you mentioned that so we have all these things that track us. So every time we click on an ad, our cookie or some identifier of each of us is somehow saved in the system, right? And we have access to this. But you mentioned that there is a change in some privacy regulations that it's coming soon. And my understanding is that this kind of tracking will not be possible in the future, right? Yeah, it happened actually, I think it was last year on the iOS 14.5, for example. Ah, okay. In your iPhone, you can actually refuse to share that data with Apple. So what Apple actually reports is not at user level, but at like an aggregate report. So in that regard, like these type of statistical models are not truly affected by this. And I believe uh, that this is going to continue happening, like privacy is going to make these statistical models which work on aggregate data will be the tools that marketer will need to use because the deterministic way, it's probably not going to, to work anymore. Mm -hmm. But you still will know if somebody came from Facebook or not. You just don't know if this user maybe visited some other website, right? Even I think you don't know, you know, the aggregate number, So, you, but you cannot mm -hmm. identify the user. Like you can report with say, okay, 10 users came from iOS, but you don't know which one. Mm -hmm. So then it makes the modeling more complex, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, if you think about TV, you don't have that either. So that's why you want mm -hmm. to, and this is the key component. Again, I think the media mix model is not really about the model. It is, but it's really about which data can you find? Because like say, already finding good TV spend data, like you need to have a common granularity and that's a, a big a part of the project, the data collection. Okay, so we do this, we understand how each marketing channel or how effective each marketing channel, and then we can decide to spend some time or some money in this channel. Then we also should keep in mind the saturation, as you mentioned, right? And then the, another area was optimizing how much money we spent on each. Yeah. Like what are the budgets, right? And then we acquired the user. And now our goal is to try to keep this user as long as possible in our application or on our website. So what are the things, what are the models or what are the problems we're solving there when it comes to retention? 
Yeah, so in retention, actually, it depends on the type of business. If you have like a contract-based uh, business, then you have a well-defined notion of churn. And then typically, this is a classification problem on which you have certain features that will probably explain or like indicate uh, why this user churn. And if you think about a classification model that outputs up, let's say, a number between zero and one, then you can run them on a new customer base and you set a threshold and say, okay, if it's more than 0 0.7, I will send an email, something like that. This is kind of a very high level view. In other businesses, like for example, Vault, there's no kind of definition of churn because you could let order today and order tomorrow, but then go for vacations for a month. That doesn't mean you're churn, that this means that you're probably just not active. So in this case, there are other type of techniques there are many of them. Some techniques that I've been recently looking into are this more kind of a probabilistic type of, of model on which you try to simulate this kind of non-contractual behavior and try to estimate the probability of being active uh, as a function of time. So it's not a typical classification problem, but again, that depends on the business model. And I, I guess here you cannot, uh, there is no definition of churn because let's say it's an app right or it's a registration so unless users a user deletes their account you don't know whether they deleted an app or just stopped using it exactly because you, you cannot track deletion right? yeah but also you it, like at that time it's already too late mm -hmm. so yeah. just to give you an example the whole idea is to model the purchase frequency so there are customers for example that order every sunday and customers that order every day so if the customer that orders every day stops for four days, there's probably something wrong and you probably want to react. That's an example. But if a customer that just uh, orders every Sunday stops for four days, it's the usual, it's expected. It's going to be more concerned if this user doesn't order in a month, so to say. So it's still trying to find this kind of sweet point on which you expect, like there's something weird from the user pattern. And of course, you want to learn this from historical data. Well, I am a, from a different category of users. So I order when I just feel like it, when I don't feel like cooking. So there is no really pattern into that. One day I might, might order, then maybe I will order next day, but then maybe for a month or two, I will not order anything because I, let's say, when I go to work, I will want to eat out. But then I'm like, I'm lazy or I have a meeting. So then I just again order, right? So you described users who order every Sunday, you described users who order every day, and then there are people like me who sometimes order. So how do you have like a different approach to each of these segments of users? Yeah, of course, you will have to have external awareness. So, so for example, I would imagine that you order more in winter than in summer. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't collected data. Maybe just because you are, let's say, you are less kind of, incentivized to go outside and maybe just cold and you yeah. it depends yeah so i mean i'm just trying to tease the fact that you can of course add seasonality features it depends on the customer as well so again as you will do in a churn like a problem where you have like a binary variable you will try to see from kind of a lookalike approach if you could detect some signal of course it's never going to be perfect but it's at least something to make sure that we target the right user at the right time you of course don't want to get emails every day it's super annoying and practically, how is it uh, implemented? Like, do you have a different model for each segment or you have one model for all the users or, or it's uh, too business specific that like every business needs to do it differently? I think it depends on the business, but you can think about this still as a regression-like problem on where you can just add external regressors into that. So just the, the output probability so to say, would be a function of this, for example, segment or external request. And then usually in this case, let's say you detect that this user is about to churn. So I use um, a different app. I will not uh, say which app it is, but I used to use it, but then I stopped because there is a competitor that I like more and they started sending me pushes. So they detected that I'm not active and these pushes are so annoying that I just want to delete the app. So I guess my question is like, do you also need to take this into account, the cost of push? Because maybe I didn't delete the app yet, but with a push, you kind of annoy me, so I go and delete it. 
yeah, this is, I'm also very annoyed by this email. So I think these are kind of two different problems in the sense that on the one hand side, you want to have a model that kind of predicts the probability that you're active, but then you need to do something else to efficiently target the users that you can actually recover, so to say, because if you're gone, like why, if I need to waste, so to say, money by sending you emails, if that costs, right? So in that regard, this is where uplift modeling comes in, on which you really want to learn which users are the ones which are kind of useful to target, again, based on, on historical data. And, and yeah, that's why presented by data. And this is, should be kind of built on top of, of the churn prediction, because again, we don't want just to predict, but we just want to prevent. And of course, the, the output rate it's something that yeah companies have to take into consideration because like the strategy of just sending emails and hope it works it's a, a little bit too naive mm -hmm. so you also need to be selective if a model says this user is not active anymore then you need to see okay how hopeless is this user right if the user is hopeless you don't bother right because the user is gone long gone yeah exactly and and uh, like the factors i guess you use here is like how often the user use this app right yeah what kind of patterns there are but also you these uplift models actually need kind of an a b test so what you actually need to like the, the training data of this optimal modeling actually are coming from a, a trace control split so you do this trace control split then you measure kind of the uplift and then you try to detect signals on which okay because the problem is that you cannot send and not send an email to an user Mm -hmm. That's what you would ideally like to measure, but you cannot. So what you try to do is to find similar users, such as that in the control group, you don't send anything and the treatment you send. And then by comparing the uplift of these two, you can estimate. So if one of them with the treatment did convert again, then you know that these type of users are the ones that you probably want to target. But if they didn't, for example, like that's yet a hint that the uplift model will have to say, okay, maybe this type of users based on external features is not the one that you want to target mm -hmm. and practically i guess you take all your user base you somehow cluster them segment them right and then in each segment you split them into two groups a and b and then you think okay like let's say let's take this segment and then we will send a push an email to this group and we will not send anything and we will see how many of them will actually return right and then this is how you measure the effectiveness of the but in real life, the data collection, it's, I think, the most challenging part, to be completely mm -hmm. honest with you, because, I mean, the models are kind of classical machine learning models, but of course, kind of marketing department would like to just push a lot and to do these control experiments in a, in a way that you know that the only thing that is different is the treatment. It's hard, right? You don't want to have compounder effects like different regions, for example, or something weird happening in a city and another thing didn't happen in that city. So it's tricky. And you said marketing is pushing, so marketing wants to send emails to everyone. So why do you bother like splitting with A and B just send to everyone and see? No, I'm just saying that doing experiment is a commitment that everyone should have in the company, right? It's not like mm -hmm. the kind of crazy data scientist trying to do so, but really like to think. And or, for example, also we need to make sure that the treatments that we send in the training phase are actually going to be consistent in the future, right? Because if in my training period, I send an incentive without a voucher, and in my, let's say, test, or let's say in my life experiment where I'm going to apply that, I apply voucher, so then it's not really that, that consistent, right? And then I guess you can also take a segment and uh, your A-B test would be to one group you sent an email with a voucher, to another you sent without a voucher. Because sending a voucher also has some cost, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you see like how much actually in each segment, how much revenue it then generates, right? So does it make sense to send vouchers or maybe how large the voucher should be? Yeah, and I think just to make it even harder, let's say you want to optimize for kind of long-term retention because if you offer a voucher and this person uses the voucher and then doesn't come again, I mean... Again, it's debatable, like it's a big question whether this was useful or not, right? You really want to make sure that there's a long-term engagement and not like a short-term effect just driven by incentives. But also, 
There could be long-term engagement driven by incentives. So there is an app that I use for fast grocery delivery. The only reason I use is because there is free delivery and they give uh, like 10 euros discount when it's over a certain threshold. The moment they stop doing this, I'll just go to a different app. Yeah, I think every problem is really trying to understand the, the customers that you have. And yeah, this diversity makes everything trickier but fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an interesting question. Which approach is more efficient, a statistical approach or machine learning? I mean, I don't have a kind of a clear difference between these two. I would say you should always go with a baseline, which is maybe not neither of those, and to have that as a benchmark. So I wouldn't jump into these kind of techniques unless it's necessary, because this problem are surprisingly hard, and if you have the right data, you might actually go away with it with a simple kind of rule. Uh, things become a little bit more complex if you don't have the data available. So yeah, keep it simple. <laughs> so what could be a good baseline, could be benchmark for churn prediction? Like, for example, if they were active last week or not. Uh-huh, okay. That's pretty simple, right? Yeah. I mean, and whatever you do, this is just the first example that came to my mind. It has to be that because if not, then just use that. Mm-hmm. What uh, do you think are the differences? Because I'm not completely sure. Like, what are the differences here between statistical and machine learning approaches? To me, they look kind of the same. Yeah. I guess maybe machine learning is like when you train XGBoost and statistics is when you train linear regression. But again, or it's yeah. about uh, tests. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't have a yeah strong opinion. Like, for me, it's just kind of methods to solve a specific mm-hmm. problem. I do believe that, for example, in this media mix model, it's really about doing a very good linear regression. And that's, in practice, hard, actually. Yeah, and we have a question about this MMM model. I think it's media mix model, right? So how often do you retrain these MMM models? And are there any significant gains in performance if you, let's say, retrain them weekly? I mean, usually, if you think about measuring offline campaigns, you don't have this every week or every day. So probably what you typically do is to have a good baseline and maybe do it maybe every month or every two months. That depends on the direct granularity because, uh, of course, the digital uh, kind of channels will keep going, but these tragedies are often to just go on and off because this is quite expensive. So, of course, we really try to automate as much as possible, like data transformation, data collection, and things like this. But re- kind of retraining on a daily level is not going to bring any value. Yeah, and uh, we talked about a good baseline for churn prediction. Well, what are good baselines here for this uh, for attribution models? I mean, again, this is really about the data that we have because uh, attribution, like ideally attribution models let's say, would be deterministic and you shouldn't have to model anything. But for example, in the iOS case, if you really want to attribute that at user level, there should be a way of splitting this kind of report into individual users. So I guess, say the easiest one is just, I don't know, to uniformly distribute that. But I guess there are other better methods maybe in like using lookalike approaches uh, to do so. Uniformly, you mean you just assume that every channel is... Like if you have, that's a little bit tricky. Actually, it's not that simple. In an ideal case, you know that, for example, the report, you say, okay, there are 100 users, and then you have a way of detecting. You don't have per se which one they are, but then you have a subset of which, you know, 100 are coming from this channel and 100 from this other. And then you don't know which one, so then you kind of randomly assign just so that the report makes sense. But of course, you cannot trace that back. It's it's tricky. Mm -hmm. And then there is another question from Sebasis about probably also this model, or it's related to the saturation, I think. So the question is, how do you choose the decay rate for each channel? And what's the approach you follow? Yeah, so actually, you don't need to choose that. You will actually learn it from the data. And uh, the techniques that you're using to be more concrete is kind of this Bayesian linear regression. And again, this Bayesian approach allows you to plug these type of transformations in a nice way, and you can actually learn that from the data. And the challenge, of course, is that you might not have enough data, or like you could over-parameterize your model just because you don't have enough data points. And this is where this kind of 
patient techniques on which you use the priors to shrink the coefficient, so to say, based on, I don't know, domain knowledge, for example, or certain heuristics can help you a lot. So ideally, you could learn this from the data. Is there any good resource on learning all these things? So we talked about media mix model. We learned about, you know, this technique that you just mentioned by Bayesian linear regressions, uplift modeling, churn prediction. Is there a good book or course or something that talks in details about all these methods, machine learning methods, or in general, like data methods in marketing? I mean, I guess there are many resources online. I should say that they're kind of all over the place. So just as a little disclaimer, I have myself a little blog on which I try to run some simulations. So that could be maybe a nice place to start. But uh, there are many blogs on online about this subject. I have found a kind of a conceptually interesting book that is called Introduction to Algorithmic Marketing. And actually it's available online. And it gives a very nice overview the marketing domain talked about customer lifetime value, this efficiency measurement through MMM, and they go beyond. And they have a nice GitHub repo on which they also have some experiments. So I, I found that reference quite interesting. Yeah, thank you. I see a question from Amin. We talked about Bayesian linear regression. And the question from Amin is, do you use Bayesian approach for building your statistical models or you're more into the frequentist approach? So I really like the Bayesian approach because on the one hand side, at least for me, it's easier to understand. It's a little bit more transparent. So I know p-values can be understood, but it, I, I just find it a little bit more transparent. And actually, it gives a lot of flexibility. So again, as I mentioned before, you can also, of course, try to do this with maximum likelihood estimation. But the fact that you can encode business knowledge in your priors is something that comes very handy if you have a small data. So it's just a very convenient approach. And yeah, I use it, but not just because it's fun or cool, but it's just because in some situations it does show a, a big advantage in this specific statistical method. You probably talk often or sometimes to your colleagues who from other companies who also work on marketing. Do you see any preference from your colleagues towards Bayesian methods in general, or it's like 50-50, or maybe uh, frequentist is more popular usually? I think people working on MMMs, on marketing mixed models, I think most of them work with Bayesian methods, uh, just because, again, it's about the flexibility it provides. So in that regard, I think it's very popular. But for other applications, for example, like for churn prevention, so to say, I guess in this case, you'll probably try to use a maximum likelihood estimation or a kind of classical machine learning model just because you really want to aim for accuracy and also the scale uh, and the, the, the data set is uh, typically much bigger. Mm -hmm. So I guess one explainability and ability to embed to use the business knowledge uh, business knowledge is more important than you go with Bayesian, but when you care more about accuracy, then you go with, I don't know, XGBoost or something. Yeah, I still believe, for example, that, again, this is some kind of early experiments that I, I've been doing, but for example, one of the benefits of Bayesian modeling as well is that you can have this hierarchical structure and in some sense allows you to solve the cluster problem. So what happens if you have a new cohort, you're doing that at cohort level. And you can pull information across categories. So in this case, actually, I think even if you're just interested about prediction or accuracy, could be actually very useful. So again, the problem is about speed and performance, but I think the people working in probabilistic programming are really working hard and making a, a great progress on scaling these methods so that they are run more efficiently. And uh, finally, you said that Bayesian approach is easier to understand, but you probably mean like it's easier to understand the output and then explain it, right? Because to me, every time I try to understand how Bayesian methods work, I see integrals all over the place and I have some mental block in my head because I didn't study geometric analysis maybe, or maybe it was for some other reason. But to me, these Bayesian methods, they're more complex. If I really want to understand how they work, then I need to go through all this mathematics. And 
yeah, that's why maybe I'm not into Bayesian methods much, simply because I don't understand how they work. I totally get it. Yeah. But I don't think actually it's the fact that like you definitely don't need a PhD in geometric analysis to understand. It's I think the approach. And I need to be very honest, there's a great reference and it's a book. It's called Statistical Rethinking. And the author of this book provides a online lectures online. And it's a beautiful book just because it's a very complete book on Bayesian analysis where you don't see an interval. It's just intuition and simulations. It's really beautiful and, and I strongly recommend. And I honestly, I read through the math, I read through the intervals, but it was just by going through this specific book and a series of lectures where I grasped it and then everything became quite transparent. So it's, it's quite popular among uh, Bayesian kind of practitioners. It's a, a book that I strongly recommend. I also heard about another book. I think it's called Think Bias. I think I attempted to, to read it. I don't remember a lot of formulas there. Have you heard about this? Yeah, I've heard. But let's say statistical rethinking this book kept me busy for a year. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I bet everything on it. But of course, there are many other references. But yeah, try it out and let me know because it, it's really pleasant to read. And if you don't have maybe the time because I didn't have the time at that moment also to go through the lectures, it's also quite insightful. Mm -hmm. okay. There is a question I really wanted to ask you. Let's say I work at a startup and we just started building a team. Like there is some product, we have a brand but we don't have a marketing department yet and we want to start doing this. Or maybe there is a person who runs some campaigns on Facebook, but we're mostly in the dark. And now we heard maybe from this talk or some, some other talk that data science is helpful, machine learning is helpful for marketing, and we want to start doing this. So what would you suggest? How should we approach doing this? Yeah, so there should be a business problem, of course, and, and I guess the problem is clear, like you want to be more efficient with respect to the marketing spend. Mm -hmm. And everything I talk today, let's say, relies on a good data foundation. So you have different channels, you have Facebook, API, you have Google, and a, you have different formats, different granularities. I would strongly recommend to the vote sometime before jumping into any modeling to structure the data by just doing data integrations from, for example, the API, designing a data model in the sense of, of data warehousing and making sure that the data quality is uh, good enough, so to say, because of course it's not never going to be perfect. And just by doing this and looking to the data, kind of the, the data should guide the models and the techniques to be used. Because again, yeah, without data, it's really, really hard. So spend some time building up the the marketing tech infrastructure to have reliable data. So from what I understood, so we first, we shouldn't think about, oh, let's hire a data scientist and let them, uh, data scientists figure out how to best spend our marketing money. First, we should invest in, to, in infrastructure, which means hiring a data engineer, I guess, and a data analyst, right? We yeah. would uh, work together so the data engineer would build the foundation and then analyst would actually look at the data and try to make sense of this data. But maybe it could be even marketing analysts, right? So analysts yeah. who specializes in marketing. And then together they will build the foundation. They will understand uh, how things work. And so let's say we have that. So what would be the next steps? Is it, are we ready to bring in a data scientist? Not yet. I mean, this is a, a little bit fuzzy, this definition, because the person, the, if the, there was an analyst working in this type of data integration and KPI modeling, I'm pretty sure that that person can definitely do some of the fundamentals of the problems that I described. Because again, there's ease, of course, but if that person already exists in the company, they will probably do a much better job starting with the baseline model than some external kind of data scientists just trying to get cool models into a new data. So there's a lot of domain knowledge here. And just to give you a concrete example, I work in a kind of truly cross-functional team and I need to work closely with the engineers and data analysts. So because the media mix model, 
it connects with the attribution and then we need to refine our attribution model and redefine the KPI that we want to model. So in a nutshell, it's not that there's a specific point in time where you need to bring a PhD with geometric analysis, it's by no means necessary. I think just by having the good data foundation, domain knowledge, and a little bit of statistics and linear algebra, you can actually do a lot of interesting things. So I guess the most important thing here is the main knowledge, right? Yeah. Which trumps everything else. And the good analyst who knows data well probably can pull together a Python script for doing simple modeling, right? Yeah, because of course, if you want to productionize this, let's say you want to deploy a churn model, you probably need a little bit more help to, okay, who is going to set up your, let's say, Airflow server, who is going to maintain that and so on, and that becomes a little bit more tricky, but at least in a very, very early stage, you really need to stop going blind in your marketing spend, but maybe try to start off with some reporting and yeah, some common sense of the same. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, if we want to have, well, not data science, but in general, if we want to start this marketing function in our data organization, probably the first good use case would be to spend our money on marketing better, more effective, right? be more effective in spending. That could be a good use case. And these are the methods that we talked about, like about attribution, right? So let's say we want to acquire as many users as possible. So what is the most effective channel yeah. where we should put more money? And then we also should keep in mind like all the things you mentioned about channel separation. Yeah, maybe. And something to add on top of that is that it's also key to define which are the KPIs which I care about, right? Because optimize respect to that. Is it conversions? Which type of conversion? Like because you can register today and use the app today or in seven days so that you get more of the short term. So defining what you want to optimize for by looking to the data that you have in place, it's also an important step, really, to see what do you want to improve. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And how do we decide if retention is more important than user acquisition? Who makes these decisions? Yeah, I think this is really strategic, and I think there should be a vision, right? And there is, of course, value in acquiring customers. But something that I truly believe is that no matter what you do marketing-wise, if your product is not solving or like helping users, you're just kind of burning money. So it's important to focus on marketing, but I think it's also key to make sure that the product is actually going to be the best tool. Because as you said, it's really about the product that drives who is going to join and if you are going to be engaged. Because no matter how many emails I send you or vouchers, if the product is bad and it's buggy, you're probably not going to use it. So yeah, focus on product development, I would say as well. So retention in this case is uh, not only having a good churn model, but also having a good product right? so that people <laughs> want to use, right? And if it's buggy, if it crashes. Exactly. So in your opinion, what are the most challenging problems in marketing? I think, as I told you, there are many. Uh, something that I keep thinking about and reading a lot about it's about offline channels and media efficiency. I think these MMM models are in kind of paper quite good and they work beautifully in simulations. But when you need to put this into practice, this is a quite challenging. It's quite fun because it's hard to find a template on which you can just run it because it really depends on the data. And often you don't have data available so you need to find like proxies or like maybe try to do an experiment or maybe use previous experiments to adjust your priors. So it's definitely a field which I believe it requires a lot of kind of creativity. And it's less about, because to be completely honest, I'm not really driven by training fancy models or like on super big models that require a lot of a computational power. For me, it's about solving these problems that require kind of new ideas, right? So if it's not going to be a patient in regression, okay, what do I need? And I think still there's a lot of room for, for new techniques to optimize media spend. How do you think it is important to know marketing for data scientists if somebody wants to work in marketing? And by marketing, I think like we talked about different terms like funnels, conversions, like there are some metrics that CTR, CVR, like all these things. And I guess for somebody who 
wants to go into marketing and hears all these abbreviations, all these words, can be quite challenging, right? So how, in your opinion, is the main knowledge of marketing important? Yeah, so this is something that I had to learn uh, by heart, so to say, but the marketing managers are your best allies. So I assure you that even if you have good data and if you have a good knowledge of machine learning, if you're working by yourself without talking with the marketing department, the marketing manager, the project's going to fail because needs change, requirements change, and it's really about the strategy and the plan, right? So what if you optimize for a channel that they are going to stop using? Like it doesn't make any sense. So it can be a little bit tricky, but the marketing team, they are your stakeholders and you need to have like a very transparent and continuous communication. And it it could be quite fun. And they have a lot of knowledge that your model actually wants. So it's it's super, super important. And actually for me, coming from academia, I was a little bit bored about just talking with mathematicians. Mm -hmm. So also uh, talking with people from different backgrounds makes things a little bit more fun. Yeah, thank you. So there is a question about your blog and I did a quick Google search. So the blog is Juanito Juanito Ortus. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot pr- pronounce it. Yeah, please uh, say it. It's better if you say it. Yeah, it's Juanito Ortus at uh, github.com. Uh, I can share it on Twitter as well. I can share it with you. Dot .io, I think. Dot .io, okay. yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I just shared the link. <laughs> uh, we will also include the link in the description. I think you also mentioned some of the resources, like some books. First one was Introduction to Statistical to marketing, to algorithmic marketing, marketing right? Yeah. The other one was statistical rethinking. Did you recommend anything else? There are many resources online. There's a very nice talk, and it was a pie data talk, and it was about churn prevention. It's more like a holistic point of view of how like going from churn, uplift, and optimization. I can check it out. It uh, looks quite but interesting. It was, I think... A yeah, PyData 19, somewhere like it. But if you put churn prevention, PyData uh, 2019, you'll probably find it. So what's the best way to find you on the internet? You can, yeah, find me on the blog and you can also find me on GitHub. You can find my email quite easily. So if you ever have a question or anything related to this or other topics around data science, just drop me a line. And Twitter, I guess, also is a good way to find yeah, it. Yeah, and Twitter as well. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your experience with us, for telling about marketing. And thanks everyone as well for joining us today, for asking questions, for watching us. Yeah, I guess that's all from us. Today. All right. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Goodbye.